Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Wednesday, April the 12th, 2017, and this is episode 1982 of the Survival Podcast. I have a guy named John Sussich, uh standing by, and I will have him on in just a bit to talk to us today about pastured poultry on your homestead or farm, and not just how to do it, but first determining the viability of doing it for yourself, like how many, does it make sense, should you do it for profit, should you just do it for personal consumption. He'll talk about his unique uh, chicken tractor system that he set up, and a bunch more stuff. It'll be a great interview. I'll have him on in just a bit. Before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey, business owners, would you like the ability to reach more than 100,000 TSP community members for as little as $5 a year? If so, consider advertising your business in the TSP Business Directory. A listing in our directory shows your support of the community and a commitment to value-for-value exchange with other members. To find something or to be found, just check out the directory at tspbiz.com. That's tspbiz.com to learn more. Hey, folks, if silver and gold are not part of your current economic preparedness plan, they should be. In fact, for over eight years, I have recommended that listeners keep 5 to 10% of their wealth in precious metals as a wealth assurance program. And JM Bullion is my personal choice for all my precious metal purchases. They offer some of the best pricing in the industry and free shipping on top of it. Check out jambullion.com to learn more. All right, and with that, let's go ahead and take a look at the year that was the episode, the year being 1982, because the episode is 1982. I have the state of computers today, talking about things like the Apple II and the IBM PC. I have Mexico owes too much, contributed by Southpaw Ben. And I have the Iron Lady kicks Argentina right in the, does a country have those? Uh, contributed by Alex Shrug. Notable births this year, Dennis Moran died in 2013 at age 30 of a heroin overdose. Computer hacker who brought down Yahoo with the denial-of-service attack. In movies, Seth Rogen and Hathaway Kristen Dunst are all born this year. Uh, in TV, Jessica Biel and Alicia Cuthbert, who was Jack Bauer's daughter in 24, and I think not much else after that. Uh, were born this year. In music, Leanne, Rhyme, Leanne Rhymes, Adam Lambert, and Kelly Clarkson. In sports, Brandon Jacobs, who is running back for the New York Giants, Tara Lipsky, figure skater, and Danica Patrick, stock car racer. This year in film, E.T. the Extraterrestrial, Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan, a much better movie than Star Trek The Motion Picture. Much better. I'm actually glad for the franchise they got a second chance after how bad the first one was. Poltergeist, a real estate agent, builds a house over a graveyard. Tron, Jeff Bridges is trapped in a video game. The graphics were amazing for the time, says Alex Drug. Indeed, I remember we used to love playing the video game Tron at the roller rink. Blade Runner, mind-bending sci-fi from Philip K. Dick, who will give you total recall in the Adjustment Bureau. This year in TV, Late Night with David Letterman premieres, Night Rider with David Hasselhoff talking to his car, Remington Steele, a woman private detective must hire a man to front her, she names him Remington Steele, it's Pierce Brosman, the future James Bond. You know, if you remember that show, you remember that Remington was always kind of looked at as like a, uh, a, a, a poor man's James Bond to begin with. It was, you know, kind of not surprising, I think, to anyone when he got that role later in life. 
Police Squad. This comedy crime show will be canceled after six episodes, so natural they'll make it into a movie. This year in music, Eye of the Tiger from Survivor. Ozzy Osbourne bites the head off a live bat. He thought it was rubber. John Belushi of the Blues Brothers dies of a drug overdose. Carrie Smith admitted she injected him with a fatal overdose. It was an accident. This year in video games, Pole Position. Oh, I remember that game. The Commodore 64 computer is released. This was Jack Spirico's first computer, the, the Commodore 64. Atari releases the absolutely terrible E.T. the Extraterrestrial. More than any other single video game, this spells the end of Atari. Uh, I will have to put an update in the wiki on that one because E.T. did not kill Atari. Atari was dying a deserving death by this point in history, and the E.T. stuff is a complete myth. It just happened to be the last game before the death nail told. The E.T. game wasn't even that bad compared to many of Atari's other games. In other news, the Commodore Home 64 computers launched. AT&T Corporation agrees to break up and divest itself. British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher's son is lost in the Sahara. Global cooling. Record lows are recorded in cities throughout the Midwest that is soon followed by Cold Sunday. Air Florida Flight 90 crashes into the Potomac River. A hero is born and dies, rescuing survivors from the icy river. Uh, unemployment hits record high in the United Kingdom. First computer virus is found. Syrian President Havis al-Assad purges the city of Haran of the Muslim Brotherhood. The DeLorean Motor Company is put into receivership. And way too many more to, uh, to list on this particular year. All right, so let's take a look at Mexico Owes Too Much, contributed by South Palm Ben. In early 1970s, the world economy was growing, and many Latin American countries were rapidly industrializing. Due to the timing, many private banks were receiving large amounts of money from oil-rich countries, allowing them to lend to Latin American countries, as sovereign debt was seen as a safe investment. As a result, these countries ended up having external debts equal to about half of their GDP, In the late 1970s and early 1980s, the world economy slowed, causing interest rates to increase. At the same time, the Latin American economy was hurt with world trade being reduced. In 1982, Mexico declared that it would no longer be able to service its debt, which caused many other banks to stop lending to other Latin American countries, and many loans were due immediately rather than having a refinancing option. The result was the per capita GDP of Latin America shrank almost 9% which is a bigger deal than it probably sounds like if you are not into economics. My take by Southpaw Ben, one of the biggest mistakes by Latin American countries was assuming the good economic times would continue indefinitely and plan their borrowing accordingly. When the economy corrected, this hit their economies hard and caused Mexico to be unable to pay their loans and cause a domino effect throughout all of Latin America. This applies directly to the individual, with many Americans wrapping up debt that can be, can, can be supported by their current salary, planning on at least maintaining this forever and not anticipating any changes, such as a pay cut or a layoff, which would cause them to default. On a side note, most economists think the reason for this crisis wasn't high levels of debt, but it was the fact that U.S. law forbid banks from lending over 10 times the amount of capital, which forced banks to cut the access to developing countries' loans. Okay, hold on a second. This is like the important part here. Most economists, these are the people that tell you what to do with your money and tell you not to worry and that Bear Stearns was going to be safe forever. Remember Jim Cramer with that. Most economists say, well, this never had to happen if banks could simply loan more than 10 times what they had. 
So if your bank, we'll make simple numbers that people can understand. If your bank had um, $100,000 in it, no bank would ever be that small, but to make it understandable, then the bank can loan a million dollars against the $100,000. Well, if we would just let them loan $2 million against the $100,000, it would be all okay. These are the people in charge of shit. This is why when I say diversify your investments, it doesn't just mean five different mutual funds. It means lifestyle design, staying out of all bad debt, being frugal with your money, making sure that when you buy something it does more than one thing. That's true diversification. Having some gold and silver, having some cryptocurrency, being in some commodities, yes, some stocks, yes, because it does make sense when you buy the right things at the right time. But not going on the autopilot, it doesn't matter. I'll just do 10% out of my paycheck into my 401k and everything will be super. Because the people that think that banks should be able to loan 20 or 30, or actually many economists believe that banks should be able to lend an unlimited amount of money, that there should be no real restriction. <laughs> yeah, okay, that'll work. <laughs> Hey, folks, I just want to say, any of you that are or ever have been an MSB or Member Support Brigade member of the Survival Podcast, I really appreciate you. Without you, I could not bring this show to you Monday through Friday, five days a week. You are the primary means by which we're able to deliver this programming and to live the lives that allow us to teach the things we do here at the Survival Podcast. But, of course, you know me. I'm not about charity. This is not some kind of membership like on uh, public broadcasting where we send you a $4 tote bag in return for a $100 uh, donation and call it a donation. This is a value-for-value value exchange. You'll get discounts to over 60 companies. You'll get a lot of other great content that's available nowhere else. And you'll get every episode of the Survival Podcast that's ever been produced in convenient zip files. You can download them all. You can learn more by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on Members. Scroll to the bottom to see our different methods of payment, and we'd love to have you supporting our show. It comes out to about 18.3 cents an episode. All right, and with that, I want to say, hey, John, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Jenks, or Jenks, Jack, thanks for having me on the show today. Hey, man, glad to have you here, John. Um, hey, can you kind of catch us up with, you know, how you got to where you are in life? You're out, you know, raising uh, chickens on a farm and doing other cool stuff. And uh, kind of take us back to, like, you know, I don't know, 11th, 12th grade in high school, you're sitting in study hall spacing out trying to figure out what to do with your life. How do you get from there to where you are? What was that path? Was it straight? Was it wonky? You know, how did you get to where you are? Oh, it was totally wonky. I I accepted early on that I wasn't going to have, you know, a very traditional path of, you know, you go to school for this set of time and you get a good job and you stay in that job for 30 years and then you retire and you're gone and good. It's like my generation can't approach life that way anymore. And um, I figured that out. That took me till college. I grew up in Connecticut, uh, went to a normal high school in a normal suburban town, no agriculture in my family that I knew of at the time. Uh, turns out we were, you know, on both sides of the family, a little bit of a subsistence farmers out of uh, financial need. Uh, you know, grandma would go home and pick beetles off all the, the plants just because, you know, that's that's what they ate during the year. And uh didn't find that out until I became a farmer. So I had no connection to agriculture at all. I went to college for design and technical theater and uh, did scenic and lighting design, moved to New York City after school and worked in four years in TV and got fed up with the city, couldn't take it anymore, and have what I've now identified 
was a quarter life crisis. And my wife and I went by bicycle from New York City to Seattle to San Diego, 5,500 miles. And we did that. We were purposefully homeless for a year, uh, living on bikes and visiting farms and craft breweries along the way because I developed a passion for agriculture, uh, sustainable agriculture in particular. Uh, got really involved where my food was coming from. And once we hit that West coast, came back to Connecticut, uh, apprenticed on a farm for a year and started our own farm, which was a terrible idea. <laughs> um, I, <laughs> you know, I, I didn't have the experience. I, I kind of knew what I was doing, but I, I definitely had the passion and the drive and man, looking back on it, there are a million things I would have done differently. Yeah, I can understand that. I mean, It's it's a common story that people say, well, I'm going to start a farm or, or, or you know go homestead or whatever, and immediately get in over their heads. So I, I guess that was kind of your experience. Yeah. So we um, we got into uh, western Connecticut in the, about the area where I've, I've landed up right now. We started our own farm. In that one year, we moved twice. We bought a car. We had a baby. We started a farm. And... Uh, Yeah, my wife started a new job and then left that job. So we fit a lot of major life moves into one year, which which made me very thin <laughs> um, with stress. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so we were biking across the country and we started a blog just so I could update my whole family and our friends who knew we were going. So we were uh, foodcyclist.com and I would update the blog so people would hear all the stories on it. I wouldn't have to make 50 phone calls every time I stopped. So we became the food cyclists as we went and came back and started Food Cyclist Farm. And then I, I just traveled for an entire year, went across the country, and 11 miles away from me at the exact same time, there was a farm starting up that their business model was raising chickens and starting a brewery. And my business model was I'm raising chickens and I was looking for a partner to start a brewery or a brew pub uh, because I had that interest and experience in craft beer as well. So I was like, no way do they have the same business model. And the name was The Food Cycle. So they were The Food Cycle. I was The Food Cyclist. And I was like, I, I can't even – you can't write this stuff. You can't make this stuff up. And uh, I, I bought a six-pack and knocked on the door. And uh, they were like, whoa, who are you? And I was like, oh, here's my story. And they're like, oh, here's our story. You're, we're The Food Cycle. And I was like, well, I'm The Food Cyclist. And <laughs> I, I was this beginning farmer and I, I needed money because I, you know, I made a few missteps as, as we all do. And, uh, so I was a farmer who needed a job and they were a farm, uh, with a little bit better funding than I had at the time. And, uh, they needed a farmer. So I came on full time as the farm manager here, uh, having gained a little bit of experience at that point. And, uh, yeah, the, the rest, as they say, maybe, maybe history. We rolled the two businesses together that year. Uh, I shut down Food Cyclist Farm because uh, we had a, a better business plan and a more legitimate operation with the food cycle. Uh, and I took over here, and I've been uh, Camps Road Farm as the farm manager for three and a half years now. Very cool. So I've raised um, a, a couple groups of broiler chickens, and you definitely get a good yield out of them in the end. But could you kind of talk to people about why they might go through all the effort of raising their own chickens for meat, specifically if they're doing it just for themselves in the first place anyway, because it's it's not 
it's not something that isn't work, right? I mean, you, when you first look at you a lot, I'll go move the tractor once a day and fill up the water, and it'll be easy. And it, it kind of that is what it is, but it's it, it is work. Yeah, the uh, it's it's totally work, and and where some of the real work comes in is the expertise and knowing what's going on with your chickens, how to assess health problems. Um, you know, it's the difference between. It's the the trap of falling into. Oh, I'm just going to quit my job and start a farm. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> there's, there's there's gardeners and then there's farmers who raise vegetables and there's people who can have a backyard flock of chickens and then there's professional farmers who do a real good job and there's an art to seeing whether or not your chickens healthy, how productive they are, how productive your business is, and all that comes with time, experience, lots of workshops, go to college for it. Um, <clears throat> so getting into this. Uh, why is there value in raising chickens? Well, I had such a hard time tracking down the type of meat that I wanted to eat. Your vegetables was a little bit easier to find. There are more vegetable growers in my area. Uh, but I got into chickens because there's a quick turnaround, you know, eight weeks on a Cornish cross bird. So in two months, I could raise a batch of birds and have enough meat, enough chicken uh, to feed me for the entire year. And if I figured if I was setting it up for myself, I could do it for more people as well, and that's where the business started. But it all came from food availability. I wanted to eat the best possible ingredients I could, and to do that, I had to grow them. You, you know it gets me when people do start talking about doing it for a living, and you realize that they're serious, they're about to pull the trigger and do it, and they've done no math at all. And, and mm -hmm. what I mean by that is, you know from doing this, if you're making $15 a bird profit, You've got a really good sales channel, and you got a really good system. That's that's a pretty damn good profit, fifteen bucks a bird. Would you agree with that? I'd say that's a really good that's a really good that's profit. That's very optimistic, especially for someone their first year of operations. So you'll say to them, if you do make fifteen dollars a bird, um, and you need to make fifty thousand dollars this year, how many birds do you need to raise successfully and and put through the profit center to make fifty thousand dollars? And and they have no idea it's over thirty three hundred birds. Yeah. Right. And, and that's, that's like, that's man, you, never done it, you, know? <laughs> you know, like you're not going to do that your first year because you're going to kill some. And, you know, you have to learn your systems and all. And I, I don't want to ever crap on anybody's dream about making pastured poultry part of what they do. But like there does have to be that come to Jesus kind of reality check with, well, how many birds, you know, do you have to raise? I mean, we, you know, going over the numbers from last year's tax year. Yeah, we did okay selling duck eggs, but people don't even get the feed expense. We spent almost nine thousand dollars on feed last year. Yeah, you know? and that's like that's not, not you're not. I'm not shocked by it at all. Mm -hmm. And it's uh, you know that's that's talked about especially in the the farming and agriculture world when we talk about starting a business and grossing this many dollars per acre or this many, you know much per flock. That's gross dollars. That yeah. doesn't include your mortality and your feed and your grit and your electricity and your water and your truck and your crates and, you know, the, the cost of goods sold, what goes into the chicken, and then all the overhead of what you need those chickens to pay for. Yeah, definitely. So kind of what how, how exactly did you get started with raising chickens on pasture? You said was a lot of it was to do with the, the time cycle, you know, the eight weeks. Is, 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 and, and was there anything else to it that made you kind of start there? Uh, I really love livestock, and I've both heard and then repeated um, that chickens are the gateway animal for raising livestock. That you know, a cow, you know, full-grown cow will take you two years, and a pig seven months, and there's a lot of capital involved uh, going up to it. And chickens can be 
an easy way to get an easier way to get into growing meat. And it was actually, uh, like most people in my position, I read Joel Salatin's Cash Report Through Profits, and it was like, I think I could do this. And uh, what was foolish was I didn't start with 100. I started with 1,500. <laughs> okay. And, you know, I started a little bit bigger um, in that first year, but that was, um, you know, Pasture Poultry Profits gave me the model. Uh, I thought I could do it, went into business. I was growing some other stuff, and, uh, yeah, it was just the gateway drug. Uh, I got into chickens, and now I'm raising pigs. I've raised sheep in the past, and I'm uh, in the process of setting my farm up uh, for some cattle going forward, but being a little smarter this time and not diving right into it and making sure that I'm a little bit better positioned and set up before I you know, take the plunge into a whole other animal. So I'm going to go out on a limb and say doing 1,500 in your first run was probably not a good idea, uh, and you probably learned from that. So if someone was get, giving this a start, what do you think a good number of chickens is to start with to develop your system and be able to get some hard numbers and know what you can and cannot do, and, and is this the right thing for you, and giving yourself some you know, some space where it, you know, once you're done, you're done, and it's not a complete disaster if, if things didn't go right. Yeah, if you've never raised a chicken before, you know, start with 10 to 25, uh, because you'll be learning a lot about how chickens act, what your systems are or need to be, uh, what are the common diseases and problems and pitfalls, so that if you, if it really isn't for you, you're only in it 10 or, you know, 10 to 25 birds. If you raised some chickens before, but you haven't done it yourself, maybe a hundred or 50 to 150, uh, still starting relatively small where you're doing maybe one or two batches for the year. You're selling a few to a friend, a couple friends and family to cover your expenses, but it's not a business. It's something you're doing more subsistence farming. And just learning, you know, learning what it is to be a chicken. Yeah, without a market, I'd, I'd personally say think hard about going over 50, real hard, because with 50, you can, if you have to, you can give away enough chickens to, 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 to make freezer space for the rest. Because I think one of the things people don't think about is, you know, 50 chickens take up quite a bit of space uh, bit once of they're space. processed. We raised 50. We did a workshop where people came and, and got to process a bird. Actually, we had them process with great because we had them process two birds and they paid to do it. Uh, so then we, we, if they wanted, we let them take their bird and uh, we took some of the surplus birds and we, uh, we cooked them as part of that workshop. And we still had about 20 chickens and, uh, that even parting them out took up a lot of freezer space. And, and a lot of times people, you know, if you've got that typical side by side or upper and lower, you, you're not fitting 25 chickens in there. It's just not going to happen. You better have a chest freezer or something like that. Yeah, that, that uh, you know, getting up to 100 or, you know, over 50. I mean, yeah, even what you're saying, over over 10 birds, you want a chest freezer uh, or to have, you know, from the day one or even before you get baby chicks, start talking up the experience to your friends, family, and coworkers because when it comes time to get rid of chickens, you need to get rid of those chickens to go through two months worth of work and then you know your first time processing you don't want that meat to go to waste and then there's biosecurity because it's not a head of lettuce it's it's raw pale meat you know they, that can develop microbes and be unhealthy very quickly if not handled properly i guess the only thing that gives you a little more wiggle room is 
You let him go another week while you try to find somebody to buy him. I mean, that's about it. You know, where a plant gets to a point where if you don't harvest it, it's going to start going bad, you know, at going to seed or, or whatever. But I'm with you. Like, try to have a place for him to go. We did that with turkeys this year. We had them sold before we bought them, basically. And uh, that made it much easier on us because when it came time for them to go, they just went. Uh, yeah. You know. So... What do you think the best breeds of chickens are to raise on pasture? Uh, I see a lot of people want to do something other than Cornish crosses, but that always seems to be the one that, that in general works. I've seen people do Heritage Whites. Uh, we did Red Rangers. They were great birds, but I don't know how marketable the meat would be, so I think it had, that would have a lot, in my opinion, to do with what do you plan to do with it? Are you raising it for yourself or are you raising it for market? What, what do you say on all that? That is definitely uh, a matter of where you are uh, personally in your chicken adventure yeah. and, uh, you know, where, where you see it going. If you don't mind them taking it a little extra time, uh, I like the Red Rangers. They're a little bit better foragers. But the meat, you know, it's, a, it's almost like an all-dark meat chicken. The more motion the animal goes through, the more the darker the meat is because there's an increased blood flow. It's also a little tougher. For me as a farmer, so that's a good, you know, backyard to start. They also have a lower mortality because they're a little hardier. For me as a producer, um, where the market is right now, I'm producing, I'm raising Cornish cross chickens because they're closer in visually what the people are used to in the store. You know, everybody, especially, uh, you know, general public, um, uh, doesn't like change and, you know, just resists, is, is a little nervous. So if you can give them something that, you know, is a stepping stone of like, Oh, this looks like what you would get in the store, maybe a little bit different, but the taste is going to be out of this world different than what you get in the store. One, you know, just I got to get the chicken in someone in people's mouths somehow. Uh, so having a marketable bird that's reliable for me and has a quicker turnaround, I do the Cornish cross um, because it looks like what's in the store. Uh, the way it's raised out on pasture, the flavor is so much better. It gives people the large breast meat, which everybody's looking for. Uh, and it gives that nicely packaged bird. And for me as a farmer, it's a little bit more efficient where if I'm getting a four pound bird, whether it's a Cornish cross or a Red Ranger, the Red Ranger might take 12, 11, 12 weeks where the Cornish cross, it can be seven to eight weeks. So from a profitability standpoint, I go with the Cornish cross because I'm raising a bird that's been bred to be productive in a more healthy manner. Yeah, definitely. And I'll tell you one of the things about like the whole thing with the, the Cornish is not being as big on foraging and, and running around and stuff like that. They escape less. And I know if you build a good tractor, and I really like your tractor design, that's less of a concern. But a lot of homesteaders are, are doing things maybe a little bit differently. Like, for instance, I was up at Ben Falk's place several years ago, and he yeah. was just moving his birds around with Electronet. And he had sheep and, and um, birds in the Electronet together which seems like a good deal, and it was, and it, it worked out, and the, the, the chickens actually helped keep the fly strike down on the sheep, and it made it with, like, he's like super steep hills and stuff. It was much more practical than a tractor in his terrain. Well, yeah. he, that year he had done uh, kosher kings, because the Amish will sell you the chicks for next to nothing, because they don't want the males. Uh, and they'll never sell you a hen, by the way, because it's their, you know, their proprietary egg-laying chicken. And they were big birds, they were hardy birds, they were great birds, but they also were able to get out. And he went back to Cornish because he said, you know, they stay where I put them. 
You know, and there's there's something to be said for that. And they do work the ground. I mean, we we raced Cornish Cross in West Virginia in tractors, and when you move to the next layer, you you know move that tractor one move over, you could see they they did plenty of work. Maybe not at quite the level, but it wasn't like they just sat there and did nothing. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely. I found uh, having raised the the Rangers, uh, having then raised Heritage birds for more eggs than meat. But you know, we'll we'll take the roosters for meat, uh, and then sell soup hens out of the uh, the hens later on. And you know, once they've they pass through their cycle, and with the Cornish cross, they won't forage quite as much, but they still get enough forage to have that increased beta carotene and have that extra flavor in the meat, a healthier lifestyle. But then you get into how much they forage. That depends on your pasture, which depends on you know your management practices, and that's where the art of farming comes in. Is that it's more than just putting chickens in a tractor and putting them on your on grass. Uh, pasture height manages or I don't know. Pasture height matters. Uh, your what forage is available to the birds? How much of the ground is exposed? What time of year it is? How things are growing back? All that plays into you know the quality or end product. Because if you're in certain times of year, there's going to be a huge insect uh, yield for those birds as well, because uh, they're just there. But also because, well, when they eat, they crap, and when they crap, bugs come, right? Like, mm-hmm. and like we do things like with our young ducks when we have them separated from the flock, we put a little light out there with them because it helps keep predators away. But the other thing it does is like, you know, bugs don't come at lights all night long. Anybody who's had a bug zapper knows that. But for like that first two hours, bugs come in like crazy, so they're eating those bugs. So. If you have a chicken eating bugs, they're getting a lot more beta carotene and a lot more protein than they normally would from just a chicken ration, and that's going to improve your quality as well. Because I always laugh when I see, you know, fed a 100% vegetarian diet. Well, that means you locked it in a cage, right? Yeah. No way for bugs to get in because that's the only way a chicken's going to be a vegetarian. That's been the that's been the biggest obstacle is overcoming all the well-funded industry marketing. Uh, and educating customers on what it means to be pasture raised and how we are different than even the organic chickens that you get in the store, because you can raise an organic broiler in a barn and it'll never see the light of day. Absolutely. Uh, so it's the grass that makes the difference. I, and I'll tell you personally, I would rather eat a pastured chicken that's eating conventional feed than a factory raised organic chicken. Any day of the week, I, I will. I would. I, I have no qualms making that decision right there. Yeah, I would say the same thing, exact same thing. I mean, I'd prefer you know organic or all natural pasture over just pastured. But yeah, pastured above anything that comes out of the factory environment, even if it's organic. So, what does it cost for someone to get started? I'm sure that's a big. It depends. But let's let's ratchet it back to the person that's going to give this a shot and put out you know 25 birds. <laughs> Uh, 25 birds. So if you're, you're going to need, uh, so starting from the beginning, you know, all the way up to the end, uh, and you can do it on a shoestring if you're, if you're crafty. Uh, it's such a big, you know, it depends question. Uh, you, you nailed it there. So, uh, from the beginning, you have the cost of the chick where, you know, they range from a dollar, a dollar 50 to two bucks per chick. Uh, they come in the mail And then you're going to need a brooder space, which can be, you know, a bin in your garage with a heat lamp. That heat lamp's a couple, a couple bucks and the extra light and then running the electricity is going to run you a few dollars. Um, but you can do that on a shoestring, really just set up, you know, just kind of a tote and get your chick started with a feeder and a waterer. And a lot of the stuff you can p- pick up at your local like tractor supply store or, uh, order it 
off of Amazon fairly cheap. Uh, there's so many people offering uh, chicken supplies now. I don't recommend anybody in particular shop around, see what works for you, and uh, that's what you're going to do anyways. Um, <clears throat> then getting out of the brooder, uh, if you're going to raise them on grass, having some kind of either electric net in a shelter or a chicken tractor. The chicken tractors that I designed and have on my farm, we have 24 of them now, uh, cost about $165 in materials from a big box store. Uh, all pretty standard materials, building materials, uh, comes together pretty easily, but without, you know, paying for labor, you're about 165 bucks in. But if you want to build something a little bit more simple for year one and you don't know if you're, you're in it long term or not, you can cut that cost down too. And then you have your feed. If you go conventional, it could be eight to ten dollars for a 50 pound bag. Uh, if you go organic non-GMO, it can be 21 to 33 dollars for a 50 pound bag. So there's a big price hike there. You know, if you're talking ten dollars versus thirty dollars, that's it's got to mean something to you. Uh, and then your day-to-day labor. Uh, once you're set up and your chicks are in, I mean, for for 20 birds, you're talking maybe 30 minutes a day if you spend 10 minutes with your birds as part of that. Um, but when they're chicks, you just need to check on them and make sure they're happy. Uh, when they're older and out on pasture, it takes me 45 minutes to move, move feed and water eight chicken tractors worth of chickens. For us, that's 240 birds. So 240 birds in 45 minutes. Uh, and then at the end of it, you know, for chicken processing, people used to wring the necks and dry pluck them in the sink and it costs no money. Uh, you can upgrade that a little bit and have a turkey fryer and scald them and, you know, hang them from a string and pluck them with your hands or borrow somebody's plucker. Uh, so your processing could range from anything from it being free and just scavenging for your materials uh, or spending a few bucks if you know you're going to be doing this long term and investing in like a DIY build-it-yourself plucker um, and a scalder. The, if I was going to invest in nothing else, Sharp knives and a plucker would be the two things that I bought uh, when I was processing chickens. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I, I would add real quick there. I've got a guy local to me that processes birds for four bucks. Unfortunately, if I was doing it for a business, he's not state certified to do it for resale. But for yeah. personal use, if you'll clean a chicken for me for four dollars, I'm adding four dollars to the cost of my chicken because to have it just done. Um, I think that's like a real advantage. If you look at some of the larger operations, like what Darby Simpson's doing, he couldn't yeah. run the number of birds he runs without having a, a, a certified processor for resale. Uh, that lets yeah. him focus on farming. But I also think, like, kind of what you're pointing out, like, your first batch, you really may want to self process. Because to me, one, you have the skill then, you know how it works. If you, if you kick around the idea of doing it yourself, you know what you're going to have into doing it. And, also, when you talk to someone and they say, well, I'm going to charge three bucks, four bucks a bird, something like that, you have a lot more understanding of why. You actually start to see that as a deal rather than an expense. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, we were raising up to 2,400 birds. And that, that first year, um, I, I processed all 1,500 birds on my farm. And that was difficult. And the marketing to fit within the letter of the law in Connecticut was also very difficult. So to expand my marketing and to take a lot of the pressure and a lot of the liabil insurance liability off of my shoulders, uh, we go through a processor now, and they're charging 475 per bird, and I still see it as a deal because I don't want to deal with all the stuff that goes into 
you know, effectively processing 240 birds at one, one time. No, definitely. It's, uh, you know, you, you do a dozen yourself and you, you get that way. I bet you do 1500. You really get that way. So can we kind of talk about like, so what do you come out with a unit, like your, your cost of goods sold per bird? And I'm sure there's a lot of variables involved there too, but you know, what is your target? What's reasonable? What is, what's reasonable for someone doing it for themselves for the first time to expect to like, yeah, you raise this chicken, but it ain't free, right? So what, what kind yeah. of that unit cost, cost per, per bird sold, I guess? <laughs> so my, my, my unit cost on birds ranges from $12 to $15, maybe $15.50. And that can depend on if I have a higher mortality because we had a bad storm or if the feed was off. I had feed issues in the past and now I get my feed independently tested just to make sure that the, you know, the guys at, mil, at the mill are staying honest. But per bird, I'm about with organic feed, uh, 12 to 15 dollars in each bird. Very cool. So are there any other variables there that people need to consider when they're trying to factor out what that unit cost is going to be? Uh, I mean, the, the devil's in the details. Uh, it comes down to how crafty you can be, how much you're able to solve and build yourself as you go. Um, you know, without going into too many granular details, trying to fit it all into a podcast. Um, but it, it comes down to the attention that you're going to pay and how crafty you can be with your resources. I mean, you can certainly, you see anybody with backyard chains for eggs and there's these chicken coops out there that are nicer than the house that I live in. Uh, so you can go one way with it and spend a lot of money, uh, or you can be a little bit more shoestring and get those costs down. Um, but for factors for, for chickens, your big expenses are going to be your labor, which if you're doing it yourself, it's, you know, you don't necessarily have to pay yourself or you're, you're getting that value back in the meat. Uh, your feed is the other one. Uh, that's a huge variable. And, um, yeah, being on microphone, I, I feel like there's another one, but I'm, I'm lost here. Oh, it happens. Don't worry about it. If it comes to you, we'll, we'll back up to it. Uh, kind of moving forward, we, we talked about kind of the, the work level, but what's your take on the process of slaughtering chickens as a whole? Uh, it's it, The process of slaughtering chickens as a whole, if you're doing it yourself, it's something that uh, you should definitely do at least once. I really liked your take on, you know, if you're doing 10 birds for yourself, at least do it uh, one time so you can appreciate the process. Uh, it's it's a game of slim margins, even for the processor who's charging you, you know, three to five dollars per bird. Um, you have to have a really efficient and effective system and people who know what they're doing. Um, so I liked that I got that first year experience and became very intimately aware with it, aware of it, because, you know, it's I'm a meat eater. I like to eat meat and being involved in the process and knowing exactly what happens and having the animal put down humanely is part of the reason why I got into agriculture in the first place. I was so disenfranchised with the conventional system and all the horror videos that you see on YouTube and Food Inc. And you know, I watched every food documentary in the beginning. And uh, after watching all those documentaries, I stood up on my soapbox and said, hey, everyone, this there's another way we can do this. You can have a healthy, sustainable, humane meat. And everyone went, yeah, John, sure. I, I totally want to pay more for me. Maybe you should just go enjoy your new hobby and uh, I'll be over here. And I realized that if I wanted to be the change, I had to start producing uh, chickens myself. And even in the beginning, 
to really prove that I was serious about it, processing them myself and show that I was fully committed meant something to me and then meant something to my friends and family who thought I was insane from going a job in the city uh, off to being having a job in the in the country. Gotcha, man. So um, can you talk a little bit about regulations? How, how have they been for you? Have they had been any help to you at all? Have they just been in your way? What have you? The regulations have been in my way uh, in a couple different ways. That first year uh, when I was raising birds myself in Connecticut, I had to pre-sell every live bird before I slaughtered it to be able to say that I was fit in the letter of the law in Connecticut. So it's under a custom exemption where if I'm selling off my farm, I can sell the live bird so I can sell jack a bird. And if you want to take it home and kill it yourself, you believe me, you're more than welcome to. Um, or I could process it and that's built into the fee already. So I got around that by having a CSA where I pre-sold uh, the majority of my birds for the entire season. So I didn't have to sell the birds every single week. Yeah. I pre-sold the birds. And that way I had a guaranteed customer base. I had all the money up front. And uh, then it was just up to me to run a good operation. Uh, in this surrounding states, I found that in Connecticut, we're behind Massachusetts, New York, um, Rhode Island, and a lot of our ag regulations where in New York, farmers are allowed to process up to but not over a thousand birds on their farm and sell them at farmers markets and at institutions. And that allows a lot of farmers to have it as uh, one part of their whole farm. Uh, there's not a lot of people doing it that thousand bird model who think, you know, they're going to make a living off of it. But, you know, offering a diversity of products with a thousand birds a year as part of that, um, you know, can really make a difference. Um, moving forward, oh, it was also with me processing on farm, it was tough to get liability insurance. Nobody, even farm centric insurance companies didn't want to touch it when I was uh, killing birds on farm and they heard what I was doing. They were like, no, 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 this is sorry. If that was if I got a call back. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then when I moved to a an inspected facility and had better tracking and had the USDA stamp on all my birds, that opened up having wholesale accounts, selling at farmers markets, selling to institutions, restaurants, uh, and everything else because I had that coverage because the the death and the processing of the birds was under that USDA stamp. Well, and it, also so, I mean, it wasn't it wasn't your li at that point it became their liability. So the insurance company wasn't even insuring you for that anymore. Yeah. And with, that was actually a stipulation when I moved to the new farm. We also have a brewery here. It's a larger property. There's more things going on that um, they weren't going to cover us under our plan or, or just going to be astronomically expensive if we were killing on farm. But because the insurance companies felt more comfortable with that, you know, added level of regulation, Having USDA, you know, that was their first question is, where are you killing the birds? And when we said, oh, at a USDA inspected facility, uh, and we, you know, we monitor and control all the freezer temps and all that, they were like, all right, that's cool. You have an insurance company, you know, you have insurance now. Sure, sure. And I guess, like, see, before I say this, like, if you're new to this show, I'm totally opposed to all of these regulations because I think the market is the best regulator. And you're even explaining how the insurance companies provided some level of regulation. And if there was no USDA inspection, I'm sure there'd be private groups that would offer certification that insurance companies would, like, either, you know, go, they're a good one or they're not. And you could let that happen. But 
it is what it is, and you have to deal with it. Is. So in a way, regulation helped you when you were getting started because it forced you into a CSA model, which guaranteed you a sale. So yeah. that's kind of back to like the Jeff Lawton thing with the more restrictions on a design, and we always think of that as you know geographic restrictions, but it's any restrictions. Uh, if the designer is good, the more elegant the design. So we have to look at regulations as one of the most permanent design restrictions we have. We can always you know, hope that a regulation will change, but it may be slightly easier to change a regulation than it is to change the fact that there's a cliff over there, but yeah. it's not much different. So we have to design or build around those regulations, and then if they ease up, then we can take advantage of that easing up even better, you know? Yeah, and I there's so many of these. I, I, I'm not for more regulation, and I, I don't appreciate a lot of the things that are in place. Uh, and that's putting it gently. But, um, you know, I, I found having tried it now a number of times, it's easier to get into a system and work within the system and then try to change it after you understand it more wholly than it is to go into it thinking you're going to change the world and bring a new product. You have to, you know, like know thy enemy and work within that system because if you can't have an edu educated conversation with your lawmakers, then, you know, you're not going to change anything. They're going to look at you as a hillbilly who's like, all right, hippie, yeah, no, this stuff exists because of food safety and they'll cite this case and that case. But if you can say, no, we've done our testing and this works better this way and this is how this law is stifling and then you adapt, you know, and try to change from within then just, you know, combating from the outside. Gotcha. You know, we, we, we talked about um, processing a bit, and I think for a lot of people, maybe they, oh, it's just a chicken, but they've never actually had to process an animal. Can you talk a little bit about what it means to actually take a life, even the chickens? I'm even, even the, you know, even the chicken, uh, a chicken is a, a sentient being. It may not have a prefrontal cortex, and the, it may lack the context that we as humans have. Um, but it's still life. It's still something that walks around and can show pain. And uh, if you screw up when you make that knife stroke, when you're killing a chicken, that chicken, that chicken will know. Uh, so that's something you have to deal with. I'm never uh, uh, a happy, boisterous person after a slaughtering day. I can I can kill chickens all day. I, you know, I've put down sheep and pigs and chickens now. Um, but it's something that I take seriously and respectfully. That uh, you know, you got to be ready to take a life and get blood on your hands. It's gonna, it's a very real thing. And once you've, once you've cut the neck and, uh, you pit the chicken and the chicken's dead and you've plucked it, it, it then becomes product and it's a little bit easier to sit with. Um, but if you don't have the heart for it, uh, walking up to a chicken and slitting its throat is a, is a difficult thing. Um, I found in general, uh, especially from, you know, the blogosphere, uh, and listening to interviews with people that it's, Uh, meat producers tend to be uh, a little bit louder, a little bit happier, a little bit more forthcoming, and have a lot of energy, not just in um, I'll generally categorize vegetable growers as being a little bit more introverted uh, and quiet. And I, I don't know why that is, but there's a certain level of energy. And um, I don't know. I, I lost where I was going with this, Jack. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> I mean – I do think it's a bigger thing than most people realize. When we've done classes where it's been part of the class, um, we've always had one or two people that you see it hit them a little bit harder than, than they expected. And I never enjoy it myself personally, but 
it's I think it's a good thing to to get yourself through because if you're going to eat something that used to be alive, understanding that it can be done with with some level of respect and some level of uh, honor and with certainly with some level of efficiency and compassion uh, is a good thing and it makes you more uh, more willing to seek out you know meat that comes from sources that was treated that same way. And I'll also say it's different because I grew up hunting. And to me, taking a deer with an arrow or a, a bird, you know, a dove with a shotgun or something like that, is totally different because that animal knows that it's being hunted. It has an opportunity to survive. Um, more often, the animal gets away than you succeed. Uh, so it's kind of a a true predator-prey relationship where when you're taking the life of your livestock, it's an animal that's grown to trust you. And it's it's it, there's no challenge in it from a, a skill standpoint other than doing it right. Um, but it's, it's not going to get away. It, it's not, you know, not going to pick up your central and not show up today or something like that. So it takes, it takes a different mentality to be mentally prepared for it, I guess. No, that was really well said. Those, I think those were the words I was looking for. <laughs> so do you have any achievable things people can do to create real tra- change in small-scale agriculture? Because, I mean, everybody talks about it, but when you go out and look and try to find someone to buy from, sometimes you're lucky and you find some. Sometimes it's really hard uh, to find anybody. Uh, it, 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 there are these regulations in the way. Um, there could be better ways to do things, but there's people out there going, well, what can I do? There's on a on a regular basis. There's absolutely something you can do to change, make a real change in small scale sustainable agriculture, and that's as easy as voting with your food dollars. I mean, you've heard it from I'm sure if you're listening to your show, uh, you've heard it from a number of sources. You know, vote with your dollar and find local food. But going out and really understanding, you know, where your food comes from, knowing your farmer, it takes some homework. And we live in a time where people put more energy into what TV they're going to buy or what, you know, the newest iPhone model is than what they're putting in their bodies to live on a day to day basis. And that was one of the reasons why I was so comfortable with getting in the change to agriculture from my previous career was that at the end of the day, everybody's got to eat, you know, and you're going to want to put the best stuff in your body possible. if That's something that's valuable to you. So going out, buying from a local farmer learning how your food is produced, and now having produced chickens in my area for a couple of years, <clears throat> I've lost some customers because they've started raising their own chickens. They've taken the knowledge uh, of growing chickens with me, and now they're raising their own backyard flocks. And it it's, hasn't affected my bottom line at all because they can only produce so much. They're usually producing it just for themselves, and they're talking about it and sharing those experiences with a broader customer base. And when they can't supply their friends with chickens, they send them all over to me. So just going out and getting involved, volunteering on a processing day, if somebody, if there's a farmer who is killing chickens on his farm that year or selling chickens at the farmer's market, ask where they get them processed and go get your hand in it and just experience it. I've also had customers come up to me at the middle of the farmer's market and say, do you kill your own chickens? Can I come to your farm and just kill a chicken? Is that too weird to ask? I don't, I don't mean to freak you out. I'm like, yeah. no, that's, that's why I do this. Yeah, yeah. Because even though you're using a processor, you probably still accommodate that for the individual that wanted to know how to do it. And I think that's like producers out there. We can do more too to make sure that this 
takes off because, for instance, two weeks ago, I get a text message from one of our neighbors named D. And I mean, when I mean neighbor, if I had the, the arm I used to have, I could probably stand on my roof and, and hit their house with a baseball, uh, throwing a baseball. They're about that close to us. And uh, she said, we have some cattle we're just finishing up. You wouldn't be interested in one, would you? You raise cattle? Because they, they have a house here, but then they have some acreage down the road. I never knew who owned it. Could never figure out who owned it. It's theirs. Well, yes. Of course I would. And, I mean, these are people we know. Like, they're the ones that found the dog on the street that we recently adopted. They've stopped by the house several times. They've bought eggs from us. And it's like, why didn't you tell me that you guys did, you know, pastured beef? And I, I couldn't take a whole cow, mainly because I didn't have the freezer space for it this time of year. But uh, I was like, if you guys can find, because I called a couple buddies, and both of them were like, I'm tapped out of freezer space, too. And I'm like, if you guys can find somebody to split it with me, I'll do half of one of the one of the head. And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, we need to do a better job of making sure that we're not just marketing and advertising online. and Because we do a lot of sales with our products on Craigslist and, and what well, we used to. Now we have a customer base and we don't really worry about it. But like we make sure like we put out at least once or twice a year on Nextdoor, which is like Facebook for your neighborhood, who we are and what we do. And mm -hmm. like these people are on, on Nextdoor. And I'm like, how many cows are you guys ready to process and they're like 12 I'm like why haven't you put it on next door you mm -hmm. know like why wouldn't you tell the people right here because I can see a lot of people going I can't even take a half but I can do a quarter and four people take a quarter I mean that's that's like I think the thing that producers need to be doing is be more more outreaching and letting people know that this is available Because I think that, like what you were saying is, yeah, you'll get a customer, they'll learn how to do it, maybe they buy your book, I want to talk to you about that in a second, um, sure. and, and they go off and they do that, and then you lose them as a customer, but it doesn't hit your bottom line. There's such a shortage of this type of food available right now that what we actually need is not less competition, we need more, just so people are aware that they can freaking get it. Yeah, to have that awareness... And to have more competition and more people doing it, I always encourage. That's why I release so much of my growing methods and uh, how I'm raising birds, how much money I'm making, where I'm marketing. I try to share as much information as I can to get other people into it. That's why I created the book and the pasture poultry packet because I want more producers. I don't want to go to that town hall meeting uh, or you know go for that legislation change that we talked about a little earlier with just myself or just myself and two friends, I want to go there with a group of people who need it and drive up demand. The, re the whole reason I, uh, I put out this information on how to get started with chickens, I'm not you know, selling you on the fact that it's the most profitable business model ever. I'm just trying to help you determine whether it's right for you, get you down the path, because the more people growing chickens, growing vegetables, growing food sustainably, The more demand there is, the more education there is, and the the harder my job is now, the easier it be hopefully down the line when uh, you know everything's selling itself because everybody already knows about the benefits of pasture raised chicken. Absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about you've got two things you sent me. Let's start out with the book, uh, stress free chicken tractor plan second edition. I'm sitting here holding it. It's a pretty damn good concise book. It's not something's going to take you you know a year to read or something like that, but everything in it's dead solid. He talked to us a little bit about that book and specifically the design of Chicken Tractor in it. It's a, it's a bit different than what I'm used to seeing. 
why you came up with it, and a little bit about how how it's built and, and, and how it works. Well, it's uh, it's nerdy of me to admit that my favorite reading materials are how-to manuals. Like, I like having all this equipment on farm and all these things and stuff because I like to read, you know, why did the manufacturer make it? How is it supposed to be used? How do you troubleshoot it? So, you know, how-to manuals are my go-to. So naturally, with a design background and this passion for such dry material, I wanted to take a little bit of my character, a little bit of that dry material and that passion for poultry and combine it into this book and walk you through step-by-step how to build your own chicken tractor. Uh, so what the book does is lays out all the materials, why I chose what materials I did, because uh, I used to build scenery uh, for theaters and TV as well as doing the electrician stuff. So they had to be mobile, strong, light, because set hands have to use, have, used to have to move this stuff you know, between acts uh, for a play. So with the chicken tractor... I walk through all the materials I use and why, you know, chosen for longevity or strength or weight uh, for one reason or another. And then for the design itself, um, it had to be light enough where I can move it easily or I could have, um, you know, not a male-female thing, but have my wife move it as well. She weighs a lot less than I do. She's a lot shorter than I am. So it couldn't be too heavy for her to handle. So if I got sick or if I, you know, wanted to share at farm chores, she had to be able to do it too. Uh, she was actually moving chicken tractors up until she was eight months pregnant with her daughter, Mabel, uh, giving me a hand out and farm. <clears throat> so they're light enough to move. But also uh, in Connecticut, we don't have consistently strong winds. But when we get storms, we get storms. And I've had these things out in 70-mile-an-hour gusts, and they didn't move. So they're sturdy uh, but light enough that pretty much anybody can move them on a regular basis. Uh, I also... The, the base of it is a frame, and it's very similar to the sides of the Joel Salatin-style chicken tractors, which I had built one, and it just wasn't going to work for me in my area. I, I didn't like the idea that I would have to bend into the chicken tractor uh, to get to the chickens or to the feeders. Uh, it was a little bit more cumbersome and heavy, um, and you know, not to throw him under the bus at all, but... It was just, it wasn't a design that I, I really fit for my situation. So I was, I was looking around online and I was sitting there thinking about it and, uh, I was like, what if I just take some conduit? Cause I had you know, this pile of scrap materials on the farm that I was at and had some conduit in it. Uh, and I had bent conduit before. Uh, what if I just take some conduit, bend it and put a gothic arch on top of this chicken tractor? Well, then I've got this little tent and you know, I grew up camping. Uh, I walk in and out of a tent. That allows me to access the birds on a regular basis, see that everybody's healthy and doing all right. Uh, I can stand up in the chicken tractor so that my back doesn't hurt. Uh, and my, you know, now my daughter plays in it uh, versus that two-foot-high chicken tractor she couldn't get into. Now there's a door, and when whether this chicken's in it or not, she pretends it's a store, uh, and she sells products out of it, which is great. I have a little entrepreneur for a daughter. Um, but landed on that design because it needed to be mobile, because uh, I didn't have a permanent farm, so I needed to be able to move it. I needed to be heavy enough to survive the gusts of the storm, but light enough and have enough airflow uh, where I could move it, and I didn't bake the chickens in the heat of the day. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I think that's one of the things that I almost don't know how Salatin does chickens with his tractors, and I know people say, well, it's Virginia. Virginia is pretty hot. And I look at those that design and think if I put chickens in that here in Texas, 
I can just sell you the chicken cooked with feathers on, <laughs> right? And, I mean, Darby Simpson said the same thing. He's got a different design than yours. But, again, it's this higher design, greater airflow. And what we did in Perma Ethos was kind of a kind of a, a, a modification of what he did. And it, it just seems to me that you're better off with that higher ceiling. No matter how you yeah. get there, like, I would recommend that you get there. Yeah, and I've had, you know, it's not even saying my design is the best. Uh, but not everybody has my background in materials and building and step-by-step -step and, you know, writing the step-by-step -step instruction stuff. So I just wanted the option out there if someone was getting into it but didn't necessarily have the skill to make all these decisions that somebody had done all the work for them. No, I I've think had it's fantastic because, I mean, you go right down to basically here's, here's a, a bill of materials list. Here's cut this board into four pieces this long, cut this board, make these joints here. If you don't know how to make that joint, you can just put it together, but you really shouldn't. Here's how you make that joint. It ain't that hard. Um, I think anybody that spent a weekend could build a tractor with your book, and they're going to have a very serviceable tractor. And then it also kind of takes me to, like, you want to design your own chicken tractor? Fine. That's a skill set. Right? So if you're going to learn to pasture your birds for eight weeks and get them from chicks and a brooder, to birds that are ready to harvest, that's also a skill set. And I'm big on this. Let's learn one skill set at a time, and let's master it before we're trying to learn three things that all require to go right for each one to be accomplished. You know, like if we're going to garden, and you've never gardened before, buy your plants the first year. You know, just buy your plants, and if you have to, just use pre-made Go, go organic, be pre-made fertilizer. Don't worry about how, go buy your compost. Learn to garden, get that. Then next year we can learn to start plants, you know, that type of thing. And we can use the off-season to learn a little bit more. But when you're going into something, if you can remove a variable, remove a freaking variable. Oh, absolutely. You know, and then year to year you have your, your base that you're solid on, and then you can go back and those, those inputs that you're buying in, you can learn how to do it yourself. But as much as you can to get started, Yeah, exactly what you're saying is just take the variable out, uh, remove the learning curve as much as you can, because no matter what you do, it's going to be steep. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and when you start bringing live animals in, when you mess up, things die. That's the, and, and it gets expensive quick, too, when they die. Let's talk about this other thing you sent me. It's a, a, about a one-inch ring binder. It's called the Pastured Poultry Packet. Uh, you had a guy named Scott Messina, I guess, assist you with this one. Can you tell us about that and why people might be interested in it? So with the pasture poultry packet, you asked me early on, what are the what are the costs associated with getting started with raising pasture poultry? And I'm definitely big on not selling business plans. Like I'm not going to say this is going to work for you in your area. This is exactly what you know you can do to earn a living off of raising pasture poultry because that's nonsense. Because where I am, I can get six dollars a pound for chicken. Upstate New York. There's no way, no way anybody's going to pay $6 a pound or, you know, there's other areas of the country. And actually that book is now sold around the world. Uh, I'm on five continents, which is just like a fun thing to throw in, <laughs> fun thing to say. Uh, it's still surreal to me. Um, but not saying that it's profitable, but f helping you determine what your startup costs are going to be and what your costs for each chicken uh, are going to be. So what the packet does is, walks you through each page, answers one specific question. And at the beginning of each chapter, there's a summary with all the questions. So we'll go through your startup costs. Do you need a truck? Do you need uh, chicken tractors? Uh, where's your processor? Are you going to raise uh, chicks 
uh, and hatch your own eggs or are you going to buy in chicks? Are you going to have male, female? And it goes through every question that you could possibly want to ask uh, for getting started with chickens. And then it summarizes it for you so that you have your budget sheet, your startup costs worked out. And then for your unit cost for a chicken, it goes through every possible input that I've ever put into a chicken, whether you need it, how much you need, what kind you might need, how much it's going to cost you, what my costs are versus what yours may or may not be. And you go through, it's a workbook, so you go through and answer one question on each page, fill out your summary sheet, and then you've got your unit cost before you've even begun. And if you find through doing your due diligence and your research that it's going to cost way too much for you to do this or that your market can't support it, then, you know, you may have paid for the packet, but you've saved yourself, you know, possibly a couple grand uh, off of a failed enterprise or a failed experience. So it's it's helps you determine whether or not this may be a good idea for you. And I think the other thing it would do is maybe it's not going to tell you that it's not a good idea, but it's going to tell you that the idea that you had for it was wrong and you need to readjust certain things. And this is what you need to do to make it work. So you need to find people willing to pay X for your chickens to make worth make it worth doing, you know, more than just for yourself. That type of thing as well. Because a lot of times people think, well, I, I can sell these <laughs> birds for three fifty a pound or whatever, and so they they do it. And they do it. They they completely get it done, and then it caught. They just paid to work, and they've made no profit. And then they're frustrated, you know. And they they never even knew that was going to happen going into it, but they could have because math. <laughs> because math, <laughs> you know. And then you you walk through and you answer all the questions. You find what your unit cost is, and then you can determine what your margin it wants to be. You know, you add forty percent to your unit cost and. Uh, that's, that's how much you gotta charge. And if you go to the supermarket and you're astronomically above all the other, the other, uh, chickens available there, you know, your market may not be able to support it and it may not be the best idea, uh, without some more research or marketing, you know, education or, uh, having it just be, you know, a side project. Yeah, because I've gotten emails from people that said, Jack, I went out and got ducks, and I, I put my duck eggs up for sale for $8 a dozen, just like you did. And you said I could get $8 a dozen, and I can't. No one here will pay that. And my first response is, well, I'm not sure no one there will pay that. I'm not sure that you've dialed your marketing in the right way, but let's stop a second. I never said you could get $8 a dozen for eggs. I said I sell my eggs for $8 a dozen, and we always sell out. That's because one, I live in a you know the edge of a 6.2 million person market, uh, and two, we tell a very good, compelling story that helps sell our product. That does it. So when you, I think what happens is people hear, well, you know, so and so is doing pasture poultry for six ninety nine a pound or whatever, whatever it doesn't even matter, whatever it is. Well, I can do that too. Right. Well, do you live where they are? Have you, you know, they've been doing it for 20 years. They've developed regular customers because one of the things you learn as a producer is the most Difficult thing to do is get someone to pay for your product the first time. The second time is easy, right? They, you know, they buy uh, your chicken and they go home and they eat it and they go, "That was really better." But you know what really gets them when they say, "Well, I can't afford to buy that all the time." They go to the grocery store and they buy Tyson, and they bring it home and they cut that package open and they pull that chicken out. And you know what I'm gonna say next, right? That smell, that smell hits them in the yeah. face and they go, "Oh." And they, they never really got punched in the face with that smell before. And they go, 
well, you know, John's chicken didn't smell like that. Why, why didn't John's chicken smell? Maybe I should go try John's chicken again to see if it does. And then you get John's chicken out and you smell it and it doesn't smell bad at all. You can sniff it and it doesn't smell bad. And you start thinking to yourself, well, what, what the hell makes that smell? And if you do any research, you find out it's basically E. coli poop soup that the chicken's, you know, drenched in with chlorine and other things. And all of a sudden, the premium makes a lot more sense. And if you can get them to use your product for you know a month, then they don't want it not in their life anymore. And I think one of the things that new producers need to understand, the successful producer you're trying to emulate, they've done that. And, and they had to struggle to get there. And I think farming is not just hard from the standpoint of doing the work. It's hard in developing the market, and that's the part that I think people fall flat on more than producing because sooner or later you're going to get production right. Um, but if you can't move the product, then you can't make money. Yeah, and a lot of that producing is what's romanticized, and that's what makes for good backyard chicken blogs and you know the, the feel-good information out there is the spending time with your birds and animal husbandry and growing your own food. But as soon as you step into the I want to make it profitable or I want to make it uh, work for my family, the marketing and, you know, just going back to like insurance liabilities, like who wants to talk about who who stays up at night dreaming about like trying to find a good premium. Uh, <laughs> um, but it, it, It's that marketing and the due diligence. And even, you know, a couple of years in, I still struggle with it. And the name of my company is Farm Marketing Solutions. You know, but you just telling your story and getting out there and getting chicken onto people's dinner plate, that's a task. You know, growing it is one task and you can feel good coming in at night and your, your arms are tired and your back hurts a little bit, but you know you did good and you got a little sunburn on your neck and on your, on your nose and your cheeks and you're like, yes, that was so fulfilling. But then the worst feeling is having not done your marketing, having not looked into your demographics, And then you slaughter all your birds. You don't have enough freezer space, and you're scrambling yeah. to get rid of these chickens, you know. Or you're making you're making 400 quarts of chicken soup and canning it because that's the only thing you can do at that point. You feel that way, or you're you're making an awful lot of dog food or something like that. It just it, it it's kind of crushing. And I think one of the things we as producers actually could use in the poultry world, and you tell me if I'm wrong, is more people like you were talking about earlier that, that find a producer and go. I don't want to pay this much money all the time because there's only be so many of these people anyway. I'm going to raise my own little backyard flock. If we had for every producer that's producing for resale, 20 or 30 backyard producers producing for themselves that also wanted processing facilities, we just might have freaking processing facilities, you know? And then the guy that wants to ramp up to five to 10,000 birds a year actually has a place that can process his birds and move it. Because I know you guys have one. And when you have one, it's kind of hard to fathom the fact that a, you know, a state like Texas doesn't. But the, the place I get my birds processed where they can't be for resale, they do pork and beef for resale all the time. The laws here are so stupid on poultry, and it's the big producers <laughs> that keep them stupid, um, that you just really can't geographically find a good processor for resale in my market. And that holds back everything. But if there were... You know, if there were a hundred or two hundred producers that were um, doing 25 birds a year, and then there was you know another 50 piggybacking that are actually doing for resale, I bet you one would magically appear like a unicorn fart. Because when there's enough market, then 
somebody overcomes the hurdles that are in there and they provide that service. And I think the in in certain areas it's the cart cart before the horse are kind of like when they built the New York City subway system, New York City was not what it is today at all, right? And and people were like, "Well, who's going to ride it?" And it's like, "Well, if we build it and then the ability to move across this island comes, it will become what it can become." And we, they needed that infrastructure to turn New York City into the metropolis of the world. And I think that's kind of where we are with with poultry production in a lot of parts of America today. If we had more producers, we'd have more processing, so we could have more producers that produce for a profit. That that is exactly my hope and dream with creating these two products. Is that you know I still find a lot of uh, pasture poultry profits by Salatin relevant and great information, and I still reference it. So I don't know that I'll ever write the How to Raise Chickens book because the information is out there. But getting people started, you know, the cart before the horse, I wanted to teach you how to make the cart, so I, you know, how to build a chicken tractor. Now you're ready for the horse, and uh, and is it going to work for you? How, you know, what is everybody's most sensitive topic? It's their finances. So to figure out financially whether you're not whether or not you're going to be able to support raising chickens, I've also you know step by step, really simple, uh, walk you through doing that because you know more competition is good. It, it makes us better producers because we're not just like well you know I, all I have to do is produce this well because you know no one else is doing it. I'm the only show in town. Competition makes us uh, strive to be better, strive to improve, and then giving people the stepping stones. Not every farmer wants to walk every um, person through how to raise chickens, how to kill chickens. You know, not everybody wants apprentices. But if they can say, "Look, I can answer some questions for you. Uh, if you buy the pasture poultry profits, the poultry packet, and the chicken tractor book, you'll be able to get set up in your backyard. You know, next weekend." And I would say that I think that adding Joel's book to your two resources would be a great thing for people to do. Um, if people want to get your book and your your uh, your package and learn more about you, how do they do that? Uh, I have put a ton of work into making sure everything is easy to read and easy to find over at FarmMarketingSolutions.com. Okay, great. Well, we'll make sure we have links to that plus your Facebook. I liked your Facebook page in the middle of this interview, by the way, and. Uh, All your other stuff, I'll make sure that those resources are available in the show notes today for people. Thanks, Jack. Appreciate it. John, I appreciate you being with us here today, man. And if you ever have more you want to talk about, just fill out the guest form. We'll be glad to have you back. Yeah, thanks, Jack. All right, so that was a great interview. Really good guy. You know, get by his Facebook and hook up with him if you do the Facebook thing. Check out his website. If you're thinking about doing chickens for yourself, check out his book and his resource guide. They are absolutely awesome. If you're going to be doing it for profit, get the get the Joel Salton book too. If you're doing it just for yourself, honestly, what John's put together is all that you'll need. And uh, get I have his YouTube channel linked as well. He has a ton of YouTube videos. So just check him out. He's a cool guy with a cool story doing good things, and that's what we like to see out of our TSP community. Anyway, if you like this show and the work that we do, one of the ways you can support us is do your shopping at tspaz.com whenever you're going to shop on Amazon. Just go to tspaz.com. At first link there, you click that, you go over to Amazon, you'll see the deals of the day that are on Amazon. If you don't care about any of that, you just want to buy whatever you're going to buy anyway, just do your shopping. Just stuff, stick stuff in the shop, uh, search bar, start shopping, buy your stuff, and what you've done is help support us that day without it costing you anything, not even really any more time. 
because uh, you're just clicking a link before you get to Amazon. However, if you want to see our reviews, there's another link there. You can see all of our reviews or just go by the blog. We post them every day. And uh, you'll see today's item of the day is another Encore item. I'm really behind this week, so I'm using some Encore items. But, you know, I can only put so much stuff out there anyway. And uh, this one is the Camelback Mule, M-U-L-E, which uh, actually stands for Medium to Ultra Long Endeavors. Eh, maybe that's marketing, but I'll tell you what. I bought mine over seven years ago, and I'm still using it. And it still works, and there's nothing wrong with it. It's a little faded because uh, all the time it spends out in the Texas sun, but uh, it's, a, it's a great product. And the reason I decided to bring it around this time of year is, you know, we're talking about doing pastured poultry today. This is the time of year where everybody's ramping up what they're doing. They're gardening, they're homesteading, they're livestock, whatever, and you're out working all the time. The number one injury that you're likely to incur when you're doing all that work isn't putting a chainsaw through your leg. Please don't do that, by the way, but it really isn't. It's a heat injury, either heat exhaustion or heat stroke. Heat exhaustion is bad. Heat stroke can be deadly. And I'm going to tell you, it, it always comes down to, yes, too much heat, but it also comes down to being dehydrated. And if you stay hydrated, you're not going to be a heat casualty. And I'm going to hear from somebody, that, you can drink too much water. You can. It can be done if you really try. But if you throw a camelback mule on your back with a three-liter bladder in it, and while you're working over several hours out in the sun sweating your ass off, you drink three liters of water, you are not going to drink too much water and get into some kind of trouble from that, and you are not going to be a heat casualty. Let me tell you something in the Army. They made us drink all the time, and when people drank, they didn't go down from heat casualties. So that includes the, the hot uh, airfields of Georgia with, with going through bedding and jump school, and it includes the jungles of Panama and the, the jungle-slash-desert of Honduras. I never saw anybody that drank enough water go down, ever, ever. And, and, and I, I think it's really important, and I think it's important that you have a hydration solution uh, in your life. And if you're... You know, you're just doing random stuff. You that little handy water bottle, that's fine, and and I, I do that a lot. But when you're out really humping it on the trail or just in the backyard, and you're out there over a long period of time in the heat, and I tell you, a day like today is actually a dangerous day here in Texas. The sun's not out. It doesn't feel hot. It's sticky and muggy, and it's like in the high 70s, low 80s, and you're just out there for a few minutes and you start sweating, but you don't feel that hot. That, that's, a, that's also a dangerous time, especially if it creeps up another 5, 6 degrees. You get up like 86, 88 degrees with high humidity uh, without the sun hitting you. Real, real opportunity to go down. It also has a great cargo space. has a great place to stick your phone or your, uh, your MP3 player if you're still into that. Instead of just doing everything on your phone, up above the bladder so it's not going to get wet. Double protection from that. It's just a good bag. It's a great little day pack. It's a great little, you know, every day. I wouldn't really say it's a bug-out bag quality thing because it doesn't have quite the capacity, but a day bag definitely and the best hydration solution that I know of. Check it out. If you want a larger capacity pack with the same capacity for water, check out the Camelback Hog, H-A-W-G, which stands for Holds a Lot of Water and Gear. They have some real creative people in marketing over there at Camelback, but they do build great stuff. You'll find links to both in today's post uh, at tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com. Whenever you're shopping on Amazon, just go there first to support the work we do. All right, so today's song of the day was chosen by John Adam again, who I've let just basically pick the songs running out till we come up to the present year, 2017, in the episodes. Uh, this is released in 1982, and his notes on this one said, I don't think you need any help with this one, Jack. The song is Allentown, and indeed I don't. I actually have an entire episode uh, of the survival podcast that I did about the song Allentown. It was episode 819 
from January 12, 2012. And I have a link to that episode in today's show notes. It might be one worth listening to if you've never heard it before. This song is iconic of the early 1980s. I think that we, uh, you know, we still hear people talk about Vietnam vets today. And Vietnam vets today are really honored and respected and, and what have you. And almost getting into that point of being a little bit forgotten because they've, it's been so long. But in the 19, late 1970s, early 1980s, there were a lot of really bitter Vietnam vets, and there were a lot of people that didn't really give a damn about them. And there's, there's some of that in this song. It's not what the whole song's about. It's also that people were finally coming to terms in places like Allentown and Levittown, New York, which is where Billy Joel was from. And the, the place he really wanted to make the song about wasn't Allentown. It was Levittown. It just didn't lend itself to writing The, 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 the type of song that Allentown could become. It just didn't have the same sound, the same ring, and the same story. But Allentown's really not about Allentown. In fact, Joel initially thought, well, maybe Bethlehem, because he was traveling through eastern Pennsylvania when he was doing this song, when he was trying to put this song together, and he saw the empty mills and the empty steel factories and stuff like that in Bethlehem. And he said he didn't want it to be religious. But the truth is it, that anybody with an ear for music knows that we're living here in Bethlehem and they're something, 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 um, just wouldn't work for a song, right? It just wouldn't. So Allentown had, you know, ending with town, they're tearing all the factories down. You know, it, it had that ring to it. But Allentown actually symbolizes all of these blue-collar towns in America that time are coming to term with this fact. All these, these people waiting to be called back to the factory and for the mills to fire back, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. That, that day has passed. We have to go into a new, a new world, so to speak, with this. And I find it interesting that when I, I looked this song up on YouTube, there was a comment that really kind of hit me hard, being from rural Pennsylvania, and because it's true. It's from uh, somebody on YouTube called Trev Mack from nine months ago. And it says, well, we're living here, this 2016 update version. Well, we're living here in Allentown, and the heroin is bringing us down. Well, our fathers fought the Iraq War, but we've got more drugs than the New Jersey Shore. And there, there's some real truth to that. Um, a lot of these places, all of this recovery that's gone on in the last 20 or 30 years, they haven't partaken in it. And people have turned to drugs. One of my one of my best friends from high school, and when I say best friends, I mean like a guy that was part of like our core pack of like guys that hung out together every weekend. Um, had a girlfriend that was part of that group too because of him. And uh, I remember hearing from my father while I was serving in the army. So this is a long time ago uh, that she killed herself of an. Actually, it was it was after I got out of the army, but I moved, just moved to Texas, and and she had killed herself. Uh, of a heroin overdose. And I guess that would have been about 1994, 1995. And uh, heroin has moved into these places. And what I remember as a kid growing up, like people drank and smoked pot, and that was about it. And you, you listen to this, this song, and the original episode I did on it said, was it a history lesson or a prophecy? And in that episode, I said it may be more prophecy than a history lesson. And it feels to me like that's that's become more the case since back in 2012 when I did that original episode. But in 1982, the realization that things weren't going to just come back to the way they were was, was hitting people. And 
people were either resigned to their fate or they chose to move or they chose to do something differently. And the people today that are in these places that are on heroin, that are on the dole, that are doing nothing with their lives, they're the children of the men and the grandchildren of the men and women who chose to do nothing and just live with it. Not all of it, but not all of them, but a lot of them. And I can say that as someone that comes from an area very similar. I mean, when people hear a town like Pottsville, Pennsylvania, they don't think of it as being like a, a big town or anything. But there were a lot of people that drove to Allentown or Bethlehem or Easton every day or down to Reading um, or, or down you know, closer to Philadelphia that passed through Reading that were part of that industrial world. And there were a lot of people in that area, in Schuylkill County, Pennsylvania, that worked for places that were still in business, but so much smaller than they were, let's say, in the 70s, like Cresona Aluminum, um, that I remember them kind of getting to the point of understanding that this is not coming back. And I remember so many of my friends and my friends' parents just basically feeling like, this is it, this is all we've got, and there's nothing we can do about it. It's a big part of why I left. Because I realized that I didn't know what to do. And I would never figure it out surrounded by people convinced that there was nothing to be done. And if we're ever going to revitalize these areas, as they call it, the Rust Belt, we're going to have to get out of the mentality of the last verse of this song. The last verse of the song goes like this. Well, I'm living here in Allentown, and it's hard to keep a good man down. But I won't be getting up today. And it's getting very hard to stay. And we're living here in Allentown. And what that frustration was is I don't want to leave my home. I don't want to abandon my family. I don't want to abandon my friends. But there's so little here that I don't even need to get up today. And that's making it hard to stay if you are the person that believes that you can achieve something. If you are the person that believes that you can do something. If you are the person that believes you can make something happen. And I'm, I'm hoping that in the future, in more and more of these places, people start figuring out how to do that change and make that change at home. Because the only thing that's going to save these little towns that used to be big towns all across our country. And this is the way it was in 1982. And unfortunately, all the way here in 2017, it's more of the same and worse in many ways. Because I am totally against drug prohibition. But if you want a drug that will F up your life, it's heroin. And for those of you that think the system's doing the best that it can, we wouldn't have the heroin epidemic that we do today if it wasn't for the opiates put into to, to the mainstream medicine by the pharmaceutical companies based on two flawed studies in the 1980s that said opiates were not addictive when used to treat pain. Because a whole lot of these people that are using heroin started out on pain medication that became really easy to get, as easy as getting M&Ms, but when they couldn't afford it anymore and they had the detox symptoms and they had the addiction... They switched to heroin that they could get cheap on the street. And it's ruining our lives in 2017. And it goes back to the 1980s when the industrial base of these towns dissolved and has never come back. With that, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.